stemming from what we've just experienced there about the beauty of this song and the beauty of having two of our teenagers sing it to us. I mean, let's be honest. That was a couple of just adults singing. It would have been great, but it wouldn't have been great. That was enormism right there. Right, Norm? It would have been great, but it would have been great. And that was great. And uh, we, many of us went to this seminar on Monday night uh, called Sticky Faith. And if you were there, could you just raise your hand? I know some of us aren't here who were there. But uh, one of the things that the presenter there spoke about is this, this idea of the five to one ratio in youth ministry. And uh, we'll expand that youth ministry is speak not only about our teenagers, but also our children. And traditionally, the five-to-one ratio, if you're familiar at all with youth ministry, is that we need at least one adult for every five kids. I wrote about this a little bit in the wave this week, if you saw that. But this idea that at least one, so nobody's, you know, ripping heads off or, you know, making out in the back of the van or whatever it might be. Not that that would ever happen at Coast Community. Uh, But um, you know what I'm talking about. At least one per five. Well, her philosophy, and I, growing from the research that they've done, is this reorientation of the five-to-one ratio in thinking about it this way, that, that we need at least five adults per one child or teenager. Not necessarily to supervise and keep them out of trouble now at this level, but to pour in and to invest our lives into these young people that are all, all around us. It doesn't mean that you have to go on the snow retreat. It doesn't mean that you have to volunteer for the next night lock-in, all right? Don't worry. Don't freak out. What it means is that you need to say hello. Maybe you need to get down on your knee when you greet one of the children as they come out of Children's Church. Or it means that you just need to ask a teenager how school's going as finals are approaching. And it means that you need to ask them their name, and maybe next week... You need to call them by that name. So I just encourage you, look for ways. I mean, we're being ministered to profoundly by the youth in our church. Amen? I mean, not only these two that sang to us, but our children who sang a couple weeks ago and and just the ministry of our our young people all around us is a powerful thing. So I would invite you as adults, uh, kids and teens, you you can stop listening for just a moment, but I would invite you as adults, do not take these kids for granted. think you know it, but they're not going to be here forever, and this is our opportunity. Uh, Thank you, kids. You can listen now. Thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you're doing, teenagers, in the life of our church and in our individual lives, and we just want you to know that we don't take you for granted. We appreciate you deeply, and we commit ourselves to you afresh. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Illuminate. We are illuminating. Look at your faces. You're glowing in the season of Advent. And uh, we are celebrating uh, this, this season. Uh, many of you are, are, are I'm hearing from, from a number of you, this. A, a new thing for you to celebrate, celebrate Advent. And remember, Advent just means coming or arrival. And so in these weeks leading up to Christmas, we're we're, we're, we're remembering, we're reflecting upon the coming of Jesus. Last week we talked about the second coming of Jesus. I know some of you are like, I haven't heard a sermon on the second coming of Jesus for a long time. But we talked about the second coming of Jesus. And in the weeks 
Now, as we move more towards Christmas, we'll begin to think and reflect upon his coming originally and his coming to us really all the time and all that that means to us and how it affects us and impacts our lives. But we're particularly focusing on this theme of illuminate. And, uh, and if you remember, and we talked about this a little bit last week, our, our, our focus is really twofold. We, we really want to, in these weeks, celebrate and worship and honor and recognize with all our hearts the light of Jesus Christ that has come into the world. This illuminating presence of Jesus. Our, our, the first step in the Advent conspiracy, remember, is to worship fully. And we want our lives to, to uh, just demonstrate this, this recognition, this awareness, this worship, this celebration of the light of Jesus that has come into the world. And so when we gather here on Sundays, when we gather on Wednesdays, and when we're experiencing daily our lives throughout these days, I, I pray that that would be a focus of yours, that, that you would be mindful, that you would be intentional about your thinking of the light of Jesus that has come into the world. But the second part of it is that, that we, we're declaring and just recognizing again that this that, that Advent is not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator season where we simply and only stand on the sidelines and worship and adore this light. Instead, we are to be active participants, we believe, in allowing the illuminating light of Jesus to so fill our lives that then we reflect that light to the world around us. And so as much as I want you to be intentional about thinking of the light of Jesus, I want you to be very intentional, and myself as well, be very intentional about living the light of Jesus in the world that you're a part of. And I just know where I live, and so I know a little bit about where you live. And there are some places where the light can stand out sharply because of the darkness that surrounds us. And so I invite you, worship fully the light and live out the presence of the light in the world around us. We are... Uh, asking ourselves then this question, how can we be really intentional about making room for, uh, for this light of Christ, for the presence of Christ in, in our lives? I, I also wrote in the wave that I got to be a part of a, a pastor's dinner this week where Jack Hayford was the special guest and, and he spoke a little bit. Some of you have no idea who Jack Hayford is, but Pastor Jack Hayford was a pastor of a of Church on the Way in Van Nuys, and just a, a really, really good man, and, and just, I, I, some of you won't like me for this, but that's okay. I went up to Pastor Jack afterwards, and I said, Pastor Jack, is it okay if I tell you that you're about the only TV preacher I like? Um, <laughs> nah, no, that's not completely true. There's some others, but Pastor Jack had just emerged to me, and when I would see him on TV, and just a gentle heart, but he shared about a time where when he was here uh, in Santa Barbara at the Foursquare Church for a conference many years ago, the Lord just told him to give an offering in this convention that he was a part of. And, and uh, he said, okay, well, I give an offering. That's how I do things. And he began to give his offering. He thought he was going to give about five bucks. He, he had $100 when he left Van Nuys, he said, or when he left L.A. And he bought gas. He thought he probably had about $89 left. But he wasn't sure, and he thought the Lord was telling him to give some money. He said, all right, I'll give five bucks. And then he said, I think I heard the Lord saying, no, give it all. 
And so he reached into his pocket, he began to count it, and he kind of sensed, don't even count it, just give it all. And so when the plate came around, he just took that water, what he thinks was about $89, and put it down in there. And he said the rest of the week, it was no surprise that various people at the conference offered to buy him lunch and buy him dinner, and he made it just fine. But that very night that he gave the $89, he also... Uh, invited, asked the speaker of that night to pray a blessing over he and his wife that their ministry would expand beyond the walls of just the four-square church, but into really a broader type of ministry. And, and he just said, you guys can be the judge, but I think the Lord has just worked in us and through us. And I point a lot of it back to that night here in Santa Barbara. And he said it like this. He just said, you know, I just believe that the Lord has an exchange program. I don't necessarily believe that we do things in order to get God to do other things, but he said when we do things that please God and that demonstrate an obedience to the Lord, then God is faithful to show himself in abundant power and mercy and grace. Well, what are we doing in Advent? What can we do? What steps, what position can we put ourselves in that that the light of Christ can more abundantly shine in us and in turn then shine through us? What are the, the things that we can put ourselves on a, a, a part of? What, what can we do? What can we do during the season of Advent to, to try and just kind of apply some of the breaks, right, to this Christmas season that is, that is just attempting to speed up our lives with the commercialism and capitalism I, I, and, and consumerism. I read this week that the Christmas shopping retail industry is a $450 billion industry. I read that on the uh, Team World Vision website, uh, and the, the other statistic is that it will take about $20 billion to eradicate the clean water uh, deficit that we have in our world. $450 billion spent on Christmas. $20 billion needed to deal with clean water. But how can we create space? How can we uh, allow God to work in us in such a way that, that, that we're able to, to slow down and, and keep our culture, thought about it this way, keep our culture from eliminating the illuminating that Jesus wants to do in our hearts, and in our lives. It seems like one strategy that, that uh, came to my mind as I looked at our scripture for this week is this strategy that many uh, families adhere to around Christmas, especially of uh, uh, the strategy of getting ready for company. Um, you, you all know a little bit about getting ready for company, right? That, that scurrying around, perhaps, at the last minute, or the long-term preparations in anticipation of people who may be coming to visit your home. In our house, it's uh, you know, the open house next Sunday, and so our getting ready for company has begun. And, and I just will tell you, just by way of brief announcement, that we've invited not only our own congregation this year to our open house, but we've invited a number of our friends from, from our city, from soccer teams and school and basketball teams and neighborhood and all these different things. So when you come to our open house and you see some people you don't know, uh, 
Be friendly to them. Would you do that? I know that you can without much trouble at all. But we're getting ready for company. And, and first of all, that includes picking up a lot of the clutter that has just kind of gathered around the house and, you know, frankly, figuring out places to put it, right? I mean, you got all this stuff just kind of emerges. And, you, and I told Kyle yesterday, well, we got a big garage, and so that's, that's good. But, but we got to clear out some of the clutter. But the reality is, is that soon the boxes come down from the rafters and arts and crafts from Christmas's past. And nicks and knacks, or knick-knacks, that uh, have co been collected over the years, quickly, I mean quickly, replace whatever space was created by the elimination of the clutter. Uh, it's getting ready. It's, it's, it's doing some of the deep cleaning. It's vacuuming and dusting and all those things I love to do. It's hanging the lights around the house, which I promise, honey, they'll be hung soon, early this week. Without a doubt. Uh, it's hanging the light. It's, it's putting um, the tr making room for the tree. It's, it's, uh, it's putting the ornaments. And if we're really ready for company, there's hot cider ready. There's fresh cookies in the oven. There's carols playing softly in the background. Well, we need to get ready for company. And not only in terms of our houses, but during the season of Advent, we think about getting ready for company in our hearts and in our lives because we're celebrating one who is coming, who, will, who has come, who will come again, and who comes to us every moment and is wanting to come to us in new and in fresh ways this Advent and Christmas season. I read a phrase or heard a phrase recently that makes a lot of sense to me. It says simply these words. It says, Time in, I don't have this written down for you, but maybe you'll write it down. Time in erodes awareness of. Time in erodes awareness of. And basically what that means is the longer you're in something, the longer you're a part of something, the harder it becomes to really be aware of what is actually happening, what is actually going on in that context or in that setting. In the case of our home, we uh, get ready for company not only at Christmas, thankfully, but we do it every week for our home group. I, I just want to say, if you're looking for a strategy to keep your house clean, host a home group. It really it works wonders in, in forcing you to clean your house uh, at least once a week. But if we don't do that, if we don't get ready for company with some regularity, then our time in our setting can erode the awareness of it. And if it begins to become cluttered, if it begins to become messy, if it becomes, begins to become run down or simply old, because we've been in it for so long, are you understanding me? It's harder for us to see it. Unless we step back and we say, wow, if company were coming over, hmm, wow, would I really let that room look like that if company were coming over? Would I really allow that stain to be like that in that place? Would I really allow that, you know, layer of dust or whatever it might be? Would I really allow that when we see it through the eyes? 
company. I'm inviting us in this Advent season to see our lives through the eyes of the one who will come, the one who is coming, and, and to see that in advance of his coming so that we might be ready, so that we might be prepared. Um, this, is, this is exactly what we're doing in Advent. Now, the Christmas story in the Gospel of Mark has a lot to say about this need to get ready for the coming presence of Jesus in our lives. And some of you didn't hear the last few words I said just now because you're thinking, there's no Christmas story in the Gospel of Mark. Some of you biblical scholars are like, those Christmas narratives are in Matthew and in Luke. There's no Christmas story in Mark. What are you talking about, Pastor James? Well, I'll say it again. The Christmas story in the Gospel of Mark has a lot to say about our need to get ready for the coming presence of Jesus in our lives. And yes, there are no angels. Yes, there are no shepherds. There are no mangers or wise men. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a Christmas story here. So will you stand with me? Let's read Mark chapter 1. Follow along with me as I read these first eight verses. And as I read, I'll invite you to see if you can hear it. And at the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can say, thanks be to God. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, you're right. This Christmas story is a little bit lacking in detail. It's quite actually disappointing. Uh, if you were hoping for something else, not too many warm fuzzies from this one. I agree. In fact, uh, it's, kinda, it's kind of a little bit strange. This, this John character that Mark talks about here, better known to us as John the, John the Baptist, um, probably would not be confused with any angelic beings. Maybe the shepherds, but not necessarily the angels. Uh, I, I'm intrigued, and even as I read it again for us here this morning, this detail in verse 6, why the need to tell us about the camel's hair and the leather belt and the locusts and the honey? Well, he's connecting him, obviously, with the not obviously, but with the prophet Elijah and, and this voice of one calling in the desert. But he is a different character. And uh, if, 
I, I was just thinking about this. If, the, if Mary and Joseph would have been, you know, kind of sore afraid and the shepherds afraid when the angels came, just think what they would have been if John the Baptist would have appeared to them um, in, in his getup. And, and again, I just was, <laughs> I'm probably pushing this too long, but I just, I was trying to imagine John the Baptist in our nativity scenes, you know, it just, he just doesn't really fit. He's just not quite uh, appropriate. But I began to think about this, and uh, the gospel account makes it clear that John the Baptist was just as much of, a, of, a, of an announcer, a herald of the coming of Christ as there had ever been on this planet. This, in, in fact, I love Mark's words here, is where it all began. Did you notice that? Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where it all begins. And where it all begins is with John doing much more than simply announcing the coming of Jesus. He was doing that, but he was doing much more. In fact, in the fulfilling of the prophecy of of, of Isaiah here that we, we've read about, John is, interestingly, his first cry isn't about Jesus at all. It's about us. It's about the people. It's to the people who would receive this Jesus. About those who are to, in the words of Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord and to make His paths straight. And it's here, I think, that we don't stumble. We, we charge upon two very beautiful phrases and themes that we can hold on to as we think about what it will take, what it will look like for us to create space in our lives during this Advent season for God to work in new and fresh ways, for Jesus to come to us in powerful ways, as we'll see in just a moment. The first idea is just this, practicing preparation. Isaiah said it like this, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. I was uh, working with my daughter and my son not long ago in recent weeks. Thursday night for Thomas is a big night, and I think it's Monday night. I can't remember exactly when Katie's are, but they have spelling tests. And, uh, and one of the great things about taking spelling tests when you're in elementary school you remember? You get to take a pretest. You take the test at the beginning of the week, actually, then you get to take another pretest, and then you actually take the test. Now, this is practicing preparation. And as I shared the words, and one of my favorite parts about giving the pretest is making up the sentences, right? To use the word in. Oh, that's a lot of fun. You can make up all sorts of interesting sentences to keep things interesting with your kids. But it just struck me as I was giving that to Thomas last week. Just, this is excellent preparation. Man, he's getting to do, spell this over and over that these words will come naturally to him in the moment of, of the actual test. Katie's in, in the ballet and lots of our kids are doing, I saw, I saw a couple singing in the Christmas parade on Friday night. We got to wave at the uh, kids from Santa Barbara Christian School and others playing in the band. And we had all sorts of entertainers at the Christmas parade on Friday night downtown from our church. And I know that these kids have put in an incredible amount of preparation, right? 
of work. And they don't just kind of show up and do what they do. It was interesting a few weeks ago to hear uh, Mike Krzyzewski, Coach K, the, the coach of the Duke Blue Devils. That's the only time you can talk good about the devils in church is when you're talking about Duke basketball. But he, he just became the most winningest coach in all of college basketball history. And he surpassed someone who was his, his mentor, who he had been an assistant, a player and assistant coach for, a guy by the name of Bob Knight, who is about the same as talking about the devil, I think, in church. I'm not quite sure, but Bobby Knight, if you don't know him, he's a pretty, pretty rough guy. But uh, they interviewed Coach K with Coach Knight, and they asked uh, Coach K, what was it that you learned from Bobby Knight? What was it in your years of playing for him and your years of coaching under him that you learned from him that has helped you the most in your coaching? And I didn't know what to expect, but I was listening intently, and he looked very clearly back at the camera, and he said, I learned the value of intense preparation. Intense preparation. Because, as he went on to explain, there was never a situation or if there ever was, very rarely a situation that happened in a game that they hadn't already prepared for in practice. The value of intense preparation. And this has, all of this kind of has me thinking, and, and obviously the connections for us this morning are the value of intense preparation as we think about the coming of Jesus into our lives. The value of, of clearing the slate, of clearing the clutter, of making room for company, of preparing our hearts in such a way that Jesus has room to take residence there. For John, it, it was preaching the, the uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it says the people came from all over the countryside and all of Jerusalem, hungry to come and to do what? To confess their sins is what it says. There's a hunger and a desire, I believe, within each of us to, to, to empty ourselves, to prepare ourselves through these two beautiful reminders, through confession and through repentance. And remember, repentance is not just turning away from something, but it entails also turning to something. That these are steps that we can take, beautiful steps to, to practice preparation and, and as I shared a little bit last week, my hope is that, and I think Jesus' hope for all of us is that this isn't just an Advent thing, but that as we prepare our hearts in the season of Advent, that it becomes more a, just a, a, a natural, supernatural reaction or response of who we are as people, that we really get to this place where we are, we are practicing being prepared, that when we wake up each morning, we we come to this place of saying, all right, what do I need to do to clear the slate today so Jesus has the opportunity to speak to me in the ways that he wants to? Wouldn't that be a wonderful prayer, perhaps, to say when you wake up in the morning? What do I need to do? What clutter, what, what stuff is weighing me down? What sin do I need to confess? What, what disobedience do I need to repent of and turn away from today so that Jesus might have greater access, so that I might participate in the great exchange program of God so that I might clear that out and give room for him to put what his will and his way for me into my life. Practicing preparation 
Prepare the way of the Lord. I, I would just invite us to hear John the Baptist and the author in the Illuminate book, the devotional study that many of us are reading, talks about the voice of John the Baptist calling from the chaos of our culture and society, calling us each back to a place of preparation and repentance. The, the second phrase that, that, that Isaiah used, though, was one that just really resonated with us, this idea of making straight paths. You're to prepare the way for the Lord and to make straight paths for the Lord. Next Sunday, I think it is, the, the black sheep, along with several others, will be out guarding the road for the Toys for Tots uh, run that will be happening and I'm not sure of the timing of it this year, but often towards the end of our service or somewhere in the middle, we hear about, I don't know how many there are, hundreds of motorcycles come roaring by on Cathedral Oaks. I'm not sure of the route again this year, but we'll look forward to that again if that's the case. Um, but, but our black sheep, and, and if you, by the way, this is just a little public service announcement, if you're looking for a good excuse to miss church next Sunday, then this is about the best you can get. Um, actually, if you're looking for a way to serve the community and come alongside the black sheep and others, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if there's still need, Mark, but uh, I'm sure there could be need for a few others to support in, in uh, doing the road guard. And we'll be praying for the black sheep as well. Daniel was reminding us in adult class this morning that, that after the toy run, there's a, a gathering for all those who have uh, been, who have been riding in the, in, the, in the ride, and the black sheep will have their booth there, an opportunity to continue to build relationships with those in this community. So remember the black sheep, but the, but the point of that story was that they get to guard the road, and I love this idea. Road guard. I give you a vest or something, and you stand there, and you own the road, and you block it, and you stand at an intersection, and you say, you will not go, car, because I am the road guard. And I guard this road so these motorcycles may proceed without any of your interference. Cages or whatever you guys call it, cars, uh, get out of our way. And, uh, and, and I love this idea because they're, they're clearing the path so that they can start, I think, way down in Carpinteria somewhere and, and basically make their way all the way to the Elks Lodge without, with as little interference as possible from the four-wheel vehicle variety. Clearing the road, making the path straight, making it as smooth and as easy as possible for them to get from one place to another. That's what Isaiah is talking about. That's what John the Baptist is talking about. What can we do in our lives to make it as easy as possible for the word of the Lord, for the presence of the Lord, to get from where he is to where we are? What blockades can we take down? What restrictions or impediments can we just blow up? What roads can we guard so that the presence of Jesus can make his way straight into our hearts, straight into our lives, straight into the reality of your situation today? The reality of your situation today, because I know it is of mine, is that I'm in desperate, desperate need daily of the presence of Jesus. The culture that we live in, not to say anything about 
pulling us away from a, an Advent celebration, but the very temptations that we face from day to day, the economy that we're a part of, the, the family dysfunctions and challenges that we each know, the health issues that are pressing in on so many of us, all of these things are weighing us down. And I just want to say, I want to, I want to make it as easy as possible for Jesus' healing, transforming touch to be felt in my life. And instead, so often, we just, we just build one wall after another. We just kind of think that something seems right to us, so we do it, and we don't even give any thought to whether or not God might want us to do that. And we do it, and we recognize suddenly there's another wall. We make this decision about money or about relationships or something that, again, feels right, but perhaps it's something that would be very much contrary to what Scripture would teach us. And, and we've built another wall. Break it down. Let's break it down. And the way that we do that is just by, we, the way we make straight paths are by making those decisions. As the Spirit enables us, that can clear the way, can, can guard the road and allow Jesus to have free and clear access. I I, one of the reasons I don't have the Christmas lights up at our house yet is because no matter how, I hope somebody can resonate with me on this and I'm not the only one. I'm probably the only one. But because I, I was at my parents on Thanksgiving and, and I, we left on the day after Thanksgiving on Friday to go visit some friends and we came back and my dad already had his lights up the day after Thanksgiving. I was so impressed. Something evidently didn't rub off in regards to the <laughs> Christmas light gene. I guess I didn't get that one. Um, but I, I just, I, I know that, in fact, I looked at the box last night. And when you look in the box, I, I promise, last year when I took the lights down, I was so careful to, to wind them and to, you know, wrap them in a neat and orderly fashion so that the next year it would be easy just to pull them out and to you know, hang them without any problems. And I looked at it and it just looked like a rat's nest last night. I mean, I looked in that box and it was just wires and lights going here and there and I could see some semblance of order but not enough to really inspire me beyond <laughs> looking in the box. And the first thing that I know I'll have to do is to get one of my slave labor children, uh, you didn't hear that, one of my kids to come out and hold one in, and I'll take the other end, and we'll just start unwinding, and we'll just start unwrapping, and we'll just see if in fact this thing is still connected, and all the lights are still on, and we can then move from there to hang out, but we got to straighten it out. We got to check it out. We got to make it, it straight so that the lights can move and illuminate in the way that it's supposed to. And it's just the same with our lives. Are we making straight? Are we making straight paths for the light of Christ to come to us in real ways? Where the last part of this, and just you can go on, you can just take that off, uh, practicing preparation, making straight paths. But the last part of this is just when John, and really this is still kind of coming home to me, um, so I'll just spend a moment here, but but, but there's something very powerful about this because John says this in verse 7. I'll just read it again. After me, this is his message. After me will come one more powerful than I. Um, 
I'm not even, a, I'm not even worthy to, to bow down and to, uh, to, to untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy to do even that for him. And he says, I baptize you with water, which was an awesome thing. I mean, John was giving these people this opportunity to come out and to confess and repent of their sins and to confirm that with this immersion in the water, this rite of passage. And, he's, and it was a great thing. But he says, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And uh, lots of interpreters, lots of people have taken those things, those words to mean a lot of different things. So I'm going to give you kind of the breadth of, you know, what it, I'm not exactly sure perhaps what it means, but I know it means this. It means that this one who is coming is coming to, to do something very, very significant. This one who is coming, this Jesus that we celebrate at Advent and Christmas, is not one who is just coming to kind of tweak things a little bit. He's not one who's just coming to kind of, you know, help us manage our lives a little bit better, manage the sin in our lives a little bit better. He's coming with power and with authority and with the ability to bring the, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, not just changing us from the outside, but working from the very interior of our heart and our life to make us new people. So if you were a little bit on, you know, on the edge of whether or not you really want to get into this whole preparation thing, or whether or not making a straight path is that big of a deal to you, uh, I hope you'll reconsider <laughs> in thinking about what you're preparing for and what path you're making straight and for whom you're making that path straight.